So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. These verses bring us to the end of what we've called the sanctification portion of the book of Romans. As we've gone through, I've, I've outlined these doctrinal emphases that Paul has had. He's leading us through a sequence. We began in chapter 1, verse 18, after the introduction, with condemnation. And that went through chapter 3, verse 20. The point is, everyone is a sinner, and sinners deserve death in hell. So a very bleak, frightening kind of section. But then you get to chapter 3, verse 21, to the end of chapter 5, which is justification. Which is, you can't save yourself, but because of what Christ has done, God has counted you righteous. Remember that accounting term we talked about. You have been placed in the righteousness column. And then beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, going all the way through this passage, verse 17 of chapter 8, we're talking about sanctification. This is the right now process of salvation. We're looking forward to the day when we will be with Jesus forever in heaven, but right now, God has work for us to do, and he's making us more righteous than we were before. And this is what this has all been about, about avoiding sin, about struggling with the flesh, and that we do indeed have power to overcome sin. So you could say justification is the past aspect of salvation, sanctification is the present aspect, and glorification, which we're going to start next week, is the future aspect of salvation. And Paul, here in verse 12, uses two Greek conjunctions. And when you do that, that often signifies a major conclusion or a big shift. So he says, so then, brothers. He's going to draw a quick summary of everything he said in the previous verses. And then he's going to give us a great conclusion to this section. He's just explained in this previous verses that the Spirit dwells in us. That we have God dwelling inside of us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that his job is to give us, we talked about last time, a new mindset. Those who are of the Spirit think according to the Spirit. It's a whole new way of looking at life. That you are no longer bound to do the things that your flesh, your sinful flesh, drives you to do. You are no longer in bondage to it. It was a wonderful section of you don't have to keep sinning anymore. But then in verse 12, he comes and he says, we are debtors, right? We owe something. We have an obligation. This might seem odd at first because up till now, he's been talking about freedom, that we are going to be raised with Christ, that we are free in Jesus. But he says, but we are debtors. We have an obligation, but he says, not to the flesh, not to the flesh. Your obligation, what you ought to do or have to do is not according to the flesh, we read in verse 14 of chapter 6 that sin has no dominion over you. Sin is no longer your king. And here he says, you owe your flesh nothing. You owe your sinful body nothing. We are debtors, but not to the flesh. And we've gone over this at length, but it's good to remember. The flesh is just your body. He's going to use it in parallel here, verse 13, by saying the deeds of the body. That's the Greek word soma. It's a different word, but you can see how connected they are. Your body is not inherently evil, but it's corrupted by sin. So the natural things that you need and desire have been taken to sinful excess. And we call that the flesh. That it's good to sleep, but an excess of sleep is called sloth. It's good to eat, but an excess of eating is called gluttony. That's your flesh. And he says that we are no longer under the dominion of the flesh. We owe the flesh nothing. 
That's, a, that's an important thing for us to know because there are a lot of folks that want to excuse all the wicked things they do by saying, I can't help myself. Well, if you are in Christ Jesus, yes, you can. And that's not me shaking my finger in your face. That's a celebration. You don't have to do what your body wants to do. You have a drive. You have an impulse. You have a temptation. You don't have to do it. You don't have to sin anymore. Because he says to live according to the flesh is death. This is not just death at the end of your life, although there is that. But when you walk in the flesh now, it's a living death. Sin makes things worse, doesn't it? You never look back and say, I'm so glad I lied. I'm so glad that I lusted. I'm so glad I ate the whole thing, right? It's, you're never happy about it. And that's what sin does. It makes us miserable. And the good news is that you don't have to sin anymore. You don't owe your flesh anything. And you might hear that and go, all right, that sounds good, but that is not my experience. That is not how I've lived my life. Romans 7, uh, that, that sounded like me. I have the desire to do the right thing, but not the ability to do the right thing. But as we just said in chapter 8, we are by the Spirit now. God's holy presence, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, giving life to your mortal body. Heavenly power. And up till now, Paul has emphasized your position as being in the Spirit. Remember, we talked about that last time. He's saying we are according to the Spirit. We are not in the flesh. But now he tells us that we don't have an obligation to the flesh, but in fact, we must put to death the deeds of the body. That's your obligation. Your obligation is to put a stop to the work of the flesh, which is something that we'd all want to do anyway. So how much of an obligation is it really? But there is a responsibility upon the Christian to cease from sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. These deeds of the body, you know, there's a long list that we could get into here. Galatians 5 gives us a long list of the deeds of the flesh. But just to give you a couple things here, a couple representative examples. Number one, of course, any kind of sexual sin. Anytime Paul is listing the deeds of the flesh, sexual sin comes into it. Because that is very much the strong drive of the body. And it can be taken to terrible excesses when those temptations come upon you. But you're to put that to death in Christ Jesus. There is not to be adultery and fornication and pornography among Christians. We're to put those things to death because they're the deeds of the flesh. I also thought it was interesting in Galatians 5, he included witchcraft and sorcery. This desire to go beyond your flesh and to know what is out there and to have power over things, to increase what your flesh can do. Christians are not to be dealing with any of that. There's a scene in the book of Acts where the Ephesian Christians who had gotten saved saw the, these demons attacked a guy when they tried to use the name of Jesus and Paul, but they weren't believers. And they took all their magic books and burned them. There's a great church meeting to be a part of, right? <laughs> They, they were believers, but they were still holding on. Yeah, but, you know, these things to kind of help with my stomach aches. And, you know, my grandma could read the future. And my astrology chart is just, you know, there's something to it. I don't really know what it is. But when they realized that this all was very real, they came and committed themselves to the Lord Jesus. That, that doesn't happen in God's church. Hatred is a work of the flesh. And this is, there are all kinds of different hatreds, right? But anytime we start dividing ourselves up according to the flesh... And you could do this any number of ways. Haven't you found that? It doesn't matter how many people you have in a room. You're going to end up with teams, right? So it doesn't have to just be nation. It doesn't have to just be color. It doesn't have to just be anything. We are good at dividing ourselves. But that's a work of the flesh. In Christ Jesus, it all comes together because we have one Father and one salvation and one gospel. Drunkenness, Galatians 5, calls a work of the flesh. 
And I might throw in there, getting high is the same sin. And there are people that will try to say, well, the Bible says not to get drunk. It doesn't say I can't get high. It's the same thing. And in fact, the Bible does include a word called pharmakia, which is where we get our word pharmacy from, because drugs were very much a part of the ritualistic worship of these false idols. You're not supposed to be out of control, right? The fruit of the Spirit, the last one is self-control. We're always supposed to be able to make the right decision at any moment, which is why we put to death the flesh that wants to get high, that wants to get drunk, that wants to forget, that wants to just let loose and have a good time. We put those things to death. Those are the kind of things Paul's calling us to do here. That's what you have an obligation to do. And do you like that he says, put it to death? The Bible uses violent imagery quite a bit to describe how we deal with sin. Here he says, put it to death, execute, right? Galatians 5, he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Don't let that word go over your head. That's a brutal thing. That was a violent, brutal execution. He says, do that to your flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus in Matthew 5, remember, if your right eye causes you to sin, get a fish hook and dig it out of there and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, take a giant sword and chop it off and throw that away. The idea is if it's making you sin, get rid of it. Don't try to excuse it. The Bible calls you not to tolerate things like this, but to take an active, radical stand against your flesh. Because the spirit dwells in you, the flesh is no longer your master. I've got to do what my body tells me to do. This is my orientation. This is just how I am. This is what I'm I'm susceptible to. The flesh is your servant, not not your master. And it's really hard to overemphasize the importance of discipline and, and taking a stand against sin as a Christian. You need to hear this. The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies you. And that's important to know. But all the passages that talk about God sanctifying you include these incredible calls to get up and take action. And this is where some folks can get a little out of balance when they say things like, well, really, you don't have to put forth any effort as a Christian. God's going to handle all of that. That's one of those like, okay, I get the point, but he says right here, put to death the deeds of the flesh. He tells us to take an active look at sin. And here's here's a verse that we're going to look at, 1 Corinthians 9.27, which is one of those violent passages I talked about. Paul says in the ESV translation, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Now that sounds good. But I didn't didn't find a single translation that I liked the way they they put this. Let Let me break this down. I discipline my body and keep it under control. That word for discipline in Greek is hupo piazzo. It's kind of fun to say, hupo piazzo. Hupo means under. So if you have hypotension, it means that the tension is low, right? It's below. And piazzo is your eye. So under the eye, it's a reference to the face. And this is the verb form. And I had to check two or three different Greek dictionaries to make sure this wasn't just some guy being clever. But the, the translation I came across over and over again, hupo piazzo means to beat black and blue. So beneath the eyes, the idea is you're getting punched beneath the eye. You're getting a black eye. You're getting buffeted and beat down. There's a theological question. What's worse, getting beat up or beat down? I'm not sure. But he says, I beat my body black and blue. Come on, Paul, that's kind of crazy. And then he says, and keep it under control. Well, there's another one. This is dulagogeo. This is a compound word. The first one is doulas. We know this one. It means slave. And then agogeo. 
This comes from the word which means to lead. So this word, dulagogeo, means to lead away as a slave. The word means to enslave. So let's, let's get the Tyler Warner translation here. 1 Corinthians 9.27 But I beat my body black and blue and enslave it. There you go. That's what Paul's talking about. How much effort are you putting forth to overcome sin? Paul says, I get in the octagon with my sin and I beat it down. And then I put a chain around its neck and I say, you're coming with me now and we're not doing anything that Jesus Christ doesn't want us to do. Discipline. Keep it under control. What needs to be cut out of your life, Christian? Where are you not doing this? We can be so disciplined at, at every area of our life. We go to the gym and we're always going to do one more set because there's no pain, no gain. But then you get home and you let your temper fly off the handle. Or you let your eyes go wherever they want to go. Or you're poor with your money. Where's some of that same discipline and shrewdness applied to your sin? Maybe some of y'all have got to be turned loose to know that that is what God expects you to do. Is to make every effort to overcome sin. You, we know your body is full of temptations. As long as we're still in this flesh, we're going to deal with that. But the Lord says, by the Spirit, you owe your flesh nothing. And in fact, you have an obligation by the power of the Spirit to put a stop to the flesh's influence. The call of sanctification is to be holy as the Lord is holy. But this is not just getting angry. This is good news because it's possible. You can be free. You're not stuck in these sins. Even if it's been years, the Lord says, get back up and keep fighting. Don't stop. Keep after it. Let me fight for you. Make every effort to overcome the flesh. Now, this is interesting because very often when we preach, we want to put the, the call to action at the end. It's a good way to, to end a message, right? Paul puts his at the beginning. He tells us to overcome the flesh. We owe our flesh nothing. And then he gets into verse 14 and he starts telling us why. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He's building here. You can feel the conclusion. It's going to come all the way to the end of chapter 8. Building. You don't owe anything to your flesh. Put to death that. You're a son of God. You say, am I really? He goes, oh yes, everyone who's led by the Spirit is a son of God. Everyone led by the Spirit. We often think of being led by the Spirit in a practical matter. For example, Paul was led by the Spirit not to go into Bithynia in the book of Acts. Or we say, I felt led to go here or to say that. I felt led to plant a church in Alabama, for example. But there's also not just a practical matter, but a positional matter. That to be a believer is to be one who is led by the Spirit. You're not going off willy-nilly. You're no longer sheep without a shepherd. You're following the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And if that is true of you, then the Bible says you are a son of God. He says we have received adoption as sons. The word for adoption is huiothesias. And it takes the word son, which is huios, and it makes a noun out of it. So this could be translated, for we have received sonship. That's what's been granted to you. And remember, Paul is writing to the Romans here. Paul was a Jew, but he's writing to Christians who were in Rome, both Jew and Gentile, who would have been familiar with this Hellenic culture, familiar with the Greco-Roman, as we say, culture. So they would have heard this word adoption, which is not something that really happened in Hebrew culture, and they would have known exactly what he was talking about. Adoption in our time is something that we do usually out of, out of mercy 
and out of pity for someone that doesn't have a father, doesn't have a mother. And we bring in children, we bring in orphans or, you know, friends of friends who need someone to look after them. But it was different at this time. Adoption or sonship was something that was done at the highest levels of society. This wasn't something for you know, normal folks like you and me. This was for emperors and senators and statesmen and wealthy people. If you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur, there's the whole part where the man takes Ben-Hur out of the galleys and makes him a gladiator. And then there's that big scene in Rome where he's adopted as his formal son. That's what he's talking about. And one of the, the commentaries I read from Richard Longenecker, he gave four aspects of Roman adoption. And I loved these because they make such an amazing parallel for you and me as Christians. So these are the things that were true of somebody in Rome who was adopted to provide an heir for somebody who didn't have one or to show love to somebody whose father had died and they didn't want them to fall out of upper society. And these are things that are true of you too. Number one, adoption means there is a new relationship with the father. If you were adopted at this point, this man was no longer a friend. He was no longer a cousin. He was no longer a stepfather, but he was legally and socially your father now. Likewise, we are no longer enemies of God, but we have a new relationship with the father. We are called his children. We're covered by his grace and his favor. You're not just brought into heaven and told, now go wait in the corner until you know, I've cooled off because I'm really angry at you. God says, I brought you in and now you're my children and I love you. You have a new relationship with the Father. Number two, under Roman adoption, old debts were canceled. If you were bankrupt, if you were going to lose your manor, if you were going to lose your, your crops and your gold, if you were adopted by somebody else, those debts were canceled. Likewise, you and I in Christ Jesus no longer owe the debt of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. When you come before the Lord, there, there's no more debt weighing on you. You don't have to get saved and then, and then pay off the rest. It's not like God gave Jesus as the down payment and now it's up to you to come up with the rest of it. No, it's all been cleared. It's all a gift paid for by the blood of Jesus. Your old debts are canceled. Number three, an adopted child at this time would have equal status with the other children. Now, we, ideally, that's the case today, too. This is important. This was legal. This was not, these are my true-born children, and this is my adopted son, so they get a share in the inheritance, and he doesn't. No, that was illegal to do that. If you were adopted, you were a true son of that man. You had equal status with the other children, and they could not lord it over you because you were not physically born into the family. And is that true of us as children of God in the church, too? Nobody has any special privileges with God in the church. Thank God for that. It doesn't not, the pastors don't have a leg up. The laymen don't have a leg up. Jews and Gentiles, even, even being Jewish doesn't give you any advantage in the church. Or being a Gentile doesn't give you an advantage. Being slave or free gave you no advantage and gives you no advantage in the church. In fact, the early church lived this out. There would be pastors and bishops, as they called them, who were slaves. And, and somebody would come in who was wealthy and they were expected to submit to them as their pastor and leader because status doesn't mean anything anymore. Male or female, nobody has any special advantages. And there are different churches that emphasize it different ways. This is a man's thing and the ladies just need to stay away and, and kind of participate. Or it can be, you know, the men need to become more like women if they really want to know God. Now, there's none of that in Christ Jesus. We're all one. We have equal status with God's other children. And for us as Gentiles, that's especially 
an important blessing for us. And the fourth thing is that there would be a new name exchanged for the old. You would no longer be called by your last name or the son of whoever you were, but you got a new name. And just like that, our old identity is redeemed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. How many people in the Bible, when they encountered God, had their names changed? Jacob became Israel. Saul became Paul. And the Bible says that there's a new name waiting for us in heaven. Did you know that? Revelation, Jesus said, I'll give you a white stone that has a name written on it that nobody knows but you and me. Because nobody is ever going to know the depth of what Christ has done for you except you and him. A new name. You're no longer known by all the things that you were known for before. And shame on us if we try to bring those things into the church and hold somebody's past over them. You should never be afraid, brothers and sisters, to give your testimony here. Because that's just a reminder of what God has done and where he's brought you from Would we want Paul to come in and never talk about being a persecutor of the church and never talk about when he was struck down on the Damascus Road? Of course not. We'd say, no, Paul, tell the story again. He's like, I don't know if I even like telling this. It makes me feel so awful that I did this. But we don't get angry at it. We celebrate. Same thing for you. There's no old identity hanging over you anymore. A new relationship with the Father. Old debts canceled. Equal status with the other children. And a new name exchanged for the old. That's... Greco-Roman adoption, and that's what we have in Christ Jesus, too. Here's an example. In A.D. 50, at age 13, Nero, who would go on to become Caesar of Rome, was adopted by his mother's uh, second husband or third husband. And he was adopted, and the proclamation that went out said that Nero is now son of the greatest of gods, Tiberius Claudius. Well, that's blasphemous, and that's not true, but you know what? You and I are sons of the greatest of gods. We are sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not some earthly potentate that tries to take the name of God for himself, but the true and living God. And this is adoption as sons held against the idea of the spirit of slavery into fear. So we sang that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. Comes right out of this verse. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Our status before God has changed. Becoming a believer in Jesus Christ is not being brought into yet another fearful, terrible slave relationship. But this is interesting because we like to talk about this. The Bible tells us over and over again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. God appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai to strike fear into the hearts of the people so that they would serve him. Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10 tell us the fear of the Lord is the beginning. But what I love to say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, but the love of the Lord is the end. We begin by fearing the Lord, recognizing who God is, that God is all powerful and he could snuff you out of existence if he wanted to. You got to know that. You need to understand that that is true. But That godly fear, that reverence is swallowed up by love when you are adopted as a son. When you realize that that terrifying God that caused Isaiah to despair for his life has come near to you and adopted you as his son, all of that fear, while that respect and that reverence will remain, transforms into that love that is just poured out for him. 1 John 4.18 sums it up real good. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. 
And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We begin with fear. We begin with the condemnation section, right? Knowing that God is going to bring justice one day and we are not just. But when you realize that you have been justified by the justifier, then all that fear begins to pass away. Do we ever get to the place where we're disrespectful and blasphemous to the Lord? No. But it's like your kid. Your kid doesn't care who you are. My sons don't care that I'm the pastor of the church. They'll kick the door down because they got something to say, you know. (laughs) Dad, I ate another bug, you know. (laughs) They're going to barge on in. Because children love their parents, and they don't think of them the same way everybody else does. They say, well, it's my daddy. I can talk to him anytime. I can go in. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, but the love of the Lord is the end. The Holy Spirit within you does not just make you holy. He changes your whole attitude towards God. And you know what's amazing? I've been saying sons, and I've been saying sons consistently. And we might say, well, sons and, and daughters, right? Well, of course, yes. In 1 John 3, 2 and other places, when it uses this term children of God, it uses the word tekna, which is a general term like children, that we are children of God. But you need to know this. In this verse, Paul very specifically uses the term sons. Verse 14, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He uses huioi. It's a masculine word. Is he trying to be sexist? No, of course not. He's trying to identify you and your status with God with Jesus Christ and his status before God. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's Jesus Christ. You and I are not the begotten sons and daughters of God, but we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. And by using that loaded term, Son of God, he applies it to you in order to connect you with Christ Jesus. Because if you are in Christ, then whatever is true of Christ is true of you. The Spirit, he says, gives us the right to call God Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. Father, haupater, is the Greek word there. And some of you know this, I'm sure, but the Hebrew word for father is Av. So Avram is exalted father, Abram. Avraham is father of a multitude. So That's the word for father. But the term Abba is what's called a diminutive form. What does that mean? It means it's a term of endearment. Now, we say father, but most children, if they're happy, are not going to say, oh, father, right? It's daddy or dad or papa or whatever you call your father. Grandparents have some remarkable names. that My my children call my dad Grape. Because they, they couldn't say grandpa when Micah was little, and so grape it is. But haven't helped anybody else that tries to call him grape, right? Or, or call you that. There's something special. There's a privilege that children have with their father to call them something like Abba. And the only example in the Bible we have of somebody using the term Abba is from Jesus himself. Mark 14, 36, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's taking the term that Jesus uses to address God and saying, you can use this too. Because your status before God is as the Son of God himself. You're not lesser except that you are lesser than Jesus as a created being. Whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. In fact, he's going to go on to say that in the following verses. Abba, 
There's also a great union thing here. That's an, an Aramaic term. They didn't speak Aramaic in Rome. But apparently, this was so common in the church that they knew what he was talking about. That this was what the early church did, that Jesus has given us the privilege to call him Father, Abba. You are not on the fringes as an adopted son of God. You're not on probation. You're saved, but, you know, let's see how you do in a few years. You are invited to his banqueting table and given permission to call him Abba. My son sat down at dinner and, oh, Father, might I please have something to eat tonight? Like, what are you talking to me like that for? Well, I don't want to be disrespectful. Don't, you're creeping me out a little bit, right? I'm, I'm your daddy, right? Talk to me like I'm your daddy. Talk to me like I'm your father. This is so key because being led of the Spirit is more than just morality. Being a believer is not just do the right thing. You have a whole new relationship with God. You're his son. You're his daughter. You're invited in. And when he sees you, his eyes light up and he puts his arm around you. He says, come here. How have you been? Talk to me a little bit. A whole new identity in Christ. That's why we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because we're trying to please our good father and to live more fully in that identity as an adopted child of God. And in verse 16 and 17, he goes a little farther. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And there's the general term techno. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So if you weren't so sure about me a second ago saying that whatever is true of Christ is true of you, take a look at that verse right there. He gets into this set of if-then statements. We know that we are sons of God by the Spirit. And Paul goes, now, if that's true, that means this is true. And this is true. And this is true. It's wonderful. This is where he pivots. Verses 16 and 17 are the pivot from sanctification to glorification structurally, which is what we're going to get into next time. So the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus, testifies of our salvation by his blood, and that we are sons of God. And Paul is going to say, now if that's true, here's some other things that are true. And he uses four with words in these verses. This is the Greek conjunction soon. So if we use words like synergy, for example, in English, S-Y-N, is that Greek word soon. That means with or together. And he's going to use four words that begin with that, that prefix, soon. And each one describes our close relationship to God made possible by the gospel. The first one, he says, is the spirit bears witness with our spirit. This is sumartureo. See that word martyr in there? Sumartur means to testify or to, or to bear witness with. He says, the spirit bears witness with our spirit, confirming to you our status as the children of God. This is what you call blessed assurance. You ever been in the presence of God, ever been in prayer or in worship, and you just know in that moment, and you know you're going to struggle with it later, but in that moment, there's nobody in the world that could convince you anything other than you are loved by God and you're his son or daughter. That's the spirit testifying within you. The excitement in your heart. And those of you that are a little reluctant to receive some of this, that excitement in your heart that says, oh, I wish that was true. I wish I could believe that. That's the Spirit testifying in you saying, just believe that. Just receive it. It's from me. It has nothing to do with you. It's me giving this to you freely. He bears witness with. And that's essentially been what this whole chapter has been about. So then he gives an if then. 
The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Therefore, or if that's true, then to be a child of God is to be an heir of God. So we get this word, we are heirs with. This is sun kleranimas. You can see the sun at the beginning, right? We are heirs with Christ. So first of all, the Spirit testifies with, and now we are heirs with. If you are the Son of God, like Jesus, the Son of God, then you share in the inheritance. Remember, we learned this a minute ago. You don't get lesser status if you're adopted and don't get a share in the inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says that we are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Everything that is Christ's is yours. Is he first? Always first. Because he is God, very God. He is more than we are. But as we share in his life, we also share in his blessing and his glory. Now, you better believe that you're sharing in his sacrifice. We believe that, at the very least, that you don't have to die on the cross because he did. So you also share in his righteousness. I'm not righteous. has nothing to do with me. It's Christ who is righteous. But therefore, we also share in his Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going to send you the same paraclete that I have, the same helper, the same advocate that came upon me at my baptism is going to come upon you. You share in the Spirit. You share Christ's access to God. That's why Jesus said, ask me anything in my name. If you ask the Father anything in my name, I will do it. Up till now, you've asked for nothing in my name. It hasn't even been possible. You've had to come with a sacrifice and on your knees and burning incense and saying, Lord, please hear me. He says, now you have the same access I do. Does God hear Jesus when he prays? Yes. yes. In fact, Jesus said at one point, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I've said this for their benefit so that they may know. If God always hears Jesus, he always hears you. You have access to the throne room of God. And that, you know, we, I love to throw around some of the great verses about prayer in the Bible, but this truth right here really solidifies all of it. That if you have the same access to God by the blood of Jesus, then you have the same right to ask from the Father that Jesus did. We share in his kingdom. Aren't we? Aren't we? We're going to share in the kingdom of God someday. The Bible says that we will rule and reign with Christ. Jesus said, he who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. We go, ooh, that, that seems a little much. Kind of pushing it. Hey, Jesus said it, not me. Sit with me on my throne. So how is that possible? Because you are an adopted son of God. You are brought into his family. You'll share his glory. God doesn't share his glory. What does it say? That we may be glorified with him. That when Jesus Christ appears, we also will appear in glory, Colossians says. That's something that'll cook your noodle, won't it? I'm going to appear in glory with Christ? I've never appeared in glory once my entire life. But that's what's going to be true. His throne, he even says. We are heirs with Christ. Whatever the inheritance Christ has, you are a co-heir as well. Number three, he adds a condition here, and this is important. Provided we, third with word, suffer with him. This is sum pasco. Maybe you've heard of the paschal lamb before. It's the suffering lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed. That we suffer with him. There is no escaping the trouble that comes with the triumph of being a Christian. 
You don't get to say, I want all the blessings, but none of the struggle, none of the pain. Nope, doesn't work that way. Because if you're sharing in Christ's life, you're sharing in his death, you're going to share in his suffering too. We must bear the reproach of Christ and even suffer for his name if necessary. The troubles of the church are described several times in the Bible as the completion of Christ's sufferings for the world. This is not that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough, but it's as we are the body of Christ and as we suffer in order to bring the gospel to the world, they'll say we are completing Christ's sufferings or filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Colossians 1.24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. If you want to share in the glory of Christ, you're going to share in the suffering of Christ. For all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And can I say a timely word for our time? If the pressure is increasing on the church, if there are those that are trying to push back against the gospel, or those that even want to get violent against churches. You know what? The Bible said that was going to happen, and we should not be surprised as if it's something strange. I'm not saying you have to be like, oh, this is great. I can't wait till someone burns the church down. But the disciples rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And there is a, an important perspective for us to have that as things push back and as rights maybe get restricted or as, as violence increases or as people say, that's enough. We've had enough of these Christians. We need to push them off to the side. As the seminaries start to push out those that are true believers, we can stand back and say, we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And could the Lord bring blessing and bring peace? Yes, I hope he does. Paul told us to pray for that. But make sure that you're conducting yourself like someone who knows he must suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ, if that ever comes. From the struggle against sin, that counts by the way, putting to death your flesh is, is the suffering of Christ, to real persecution, to just the pain of life. Why do I have to live like this? Because it's the suffering of Christ. And you know, you can suffer and it not be the sufferings of Christ. If you go through and you've got the worst attitude, if you go through and you're blaspheming God and you're walking away from the church and you're telling everybody, I thought God was going to do this, but he's not. Or, you know what, we've got to just leave aside what Jesus said and fix the problem. You're not suffering with Christ. Jesus took up the cross despising the shame. Aren't you ashamed to be hung up and crucified like that? Of course not. Of course not. This is for the salvation of the world. But if you can suffer, like some of y'all in here have, and you have been incredible testimonies for us, you suffer with the joy of the Lord in your heart, and you never once, like Job, you never sin with your lips, you are suffering with Christ, and you will be glorified with him. But the fourth with word here is that we will be glorified with him. If we suffer with him, let's put it another way. If you live the Christian life to its fullest, you walk with Jesus until the day you breathe your last, you will be sun doxadzo. See the word sun, it means with, and you see the word doxa, which is like doxology. It means to glorify. You will be glorified with him. This isn't just salvation. Whew, I made it in. My tail feathers are scorched, but I'm not going to hell. Thank goodness. It's not just sanctification, which is I'm not going to do any more sin. We're going to get over this. This is to be glorified with our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus has as the Son of God, you share as his son or daughter. Your body will be resurrected and cleansed of corruption. Isn't that better than reincarnation? I want to be reborn. Who knows what I'm going to be reborn as? I hope it's something good this time. That's terrible. You're not even going to remember any of that. 
What, what if you're reborn as a dog or a crow or something like that? Isn't this better than just being floaty in heaven forever? Oh, well, the spirit will be comforted and we'll be drifting and playing harps with little halos. And, you know, the Bible says that we are, when we're with the Lord in heaven, we are unclothed and we're waiting to become further clothed when we are resurrected with Jesus Christ in glory. No more sin. You'll be able to live and, and the best spirit-filled desires of your heart will be matched by the freedom from temptation to sin in your body. I, I, we can't even fathom what that's like. But that's what it was like in the garden. Except it's going to be better than the garden. Because we'll be in Christ. What Jesus had to do in order to save us from the fall is going to elevate us above where we were in the Garden of Eden. You will be rewarded for the life you've lived. Did you know that? The judgment seat of Christ says we will all stand before him that each may be rewarded for the deeds he has done in the body. Jesus is going to be handing out medals when we get to heaven. And we can sound all spiritual and say things like, I don't need anything from God. All I want is, okay, yes, that's wonderful. You know what? He says, I'm going to give crowns. He says, I'm going to give gold and silver and precious stones. Why do we need such material things in heaven? You don't know. You, you don't know what's going to be like when you stand before the Lord. He's going to glorify you and reward you. And we're going to stand before Jesus and say, I thought that that conversation went nowhere. And he's going to say, that conversation led to this conversation, which led to her salvation. And she was a missionary and led 5,000 people to Christ. Great is your reward. Rewarded. Not just, oh, thank God I finally made it. I'm so glad. And not only that, you will live forever and ever in perpetual sanctification. 1 John 3 is one of my favorite verses. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That now is important. It's not something you're looking forward to. It's now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Let's think about that for a second. What we will be has not yet appeared. The Apostle John says, I'm not exactly sure what you're going to call us when we get to heaven. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The Bible says no one can see God and live. Yet it says in heaven, we're going to see God and live, which means we're going to be like him. So John goes, I'm not even exactly sure what that all means. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And that brings it right back, doesn't it? If you are the son or daughter of God and you're looking forward to the glory with Christ, you will purify yourself. If you know that you have things like that waiting for you, why would you waste time with sin now? Why would you waste time on things that are not going to last forever? The world is so small and our time is so short. It doesn't merit comparison with heaven or comparison with glory. Oh, but I'm young and I want to live my life and have, a, have fun now and I want to be able to fill up my experience. No, you don't. No, you don't. You want to live your life in such a way that you'll be able to stand before Jesus and say, I lived my whole life for Christ. That's why Ecclesiastes tells us, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days come when you say, I have no pleasure in my days anymore. He says, live it now. I urge you. One more violent passage from Scripture, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. What is earth? What's just worldly? It's just like everybody else. Put it to death. Execute it. Flesh, you have been sentenced to death. We're not doing this anymore. 
Because then you can begin to experience the life that is to come. There is no limit to how close you can get to Jesus in this life. How amazing is that? You can plumb the depths of fellowship with God. Because you're no longer a slave living in fear. Where you've got to stay away from God and hope that he doesn't notice the things you've done. You are an adopted son or daughter full of the favor of God and overwhelmed with the love of God.